Welcome to Pieces of Art, a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. In this week's episode, Myths About Myths, I'll be talking about the stories we tell, when they help us understand art better, and what can get in the way. One of my favorite ways to explain the role of myths in society, and therefore in art, is to start with a story that just about everyone knows. How about this one? Once upon a time, because all stories start with once upon a time. Once upon a time, there was nothing. A void, maybe full of random particles of matter and antimatter. And then something happened. Maybe a particle of matter and a particle of antimatter just happened to bump into each other. Maybe infinitely intelligent beings from another dimension dropped by and decided to jumpstart the universe. Maybe a lot of things, but whatever the catalyst was, it resulted in an explosion. This explosion was huge, and it set off a chain reaction that hasn't stopped yet. Particles of matter exploded with particles of antimatter, giving rise to all of the elements and then to molecules and all sorts of fun things. Uncountable eons of time later, one swirling mass of gases and particulates resolved itself into millions of stars. And these stars condensed and whirled into solar systems, and some of these solar systems had large hunks of rock called planets. In one of these solar systems, on one of these planets, there was another weird catalyst of events, and then life started happening. It began with little tiny one-celled critters that eventually mutated and became multi-celled organisms, and that plants and fish and dinosaurs and birds and bugs and mammals and people, and hey, look, it's the movie Evolution. <clears throat> or the world. Anyway, yes, this is a story about creation, which is where all myths start. So, why did I choose the Big Bang Theory and the Theory of Evolution to start off our discussion of myths? Because just about everyone is familiar with it, and because just about everyone engages with it on some level. Love it or hate it, believe it or not, you've had to deal with it. And yes, it has a lot of evidence going for it. And hey, I'm a fan, but here's the thing. It is, in some contexts, a myth. See, every culture and every civilization has a story or a series of stories about how human beings came to exist, what our place is in the grand scheme of things, and how we interact with the world around us. That is what myths are and what myths do. They explain who we are, where we come from, and how we relate to the world we can see and the world that we can't see. I know, most of us are raised on the idea that a myth is something that isn't true. But uh, what is truth? <laughs> Okay, I'm veering awfully close to one of those long and drawn-out philosophical discussions that I actually can't stand. But here's the short, short version. There is a difference between empirical facts and quote-unquote truth. Empirical facts are observable, measurable, and repeatable. Truth, or I should say the perception of truth or truthiness, lies in how we interpret those facts, and that can be a very tricky thing. See, we all have a personal foundational belief system that we use to interpret facts. It might be an organized religion, or a philosophy, or a moral and ethical code, but we will interpret everything in terms of that foundational belief. It's called confirmation bias. A healthy dose of skepticism can help to counter this bias, but then skepticism can be its own bias, and then you're back where you started. Anyway. 
The way we usually talk about myths, a myth is anything that someone else knows to be true that you know is false. And hey, it's Men in Black. I'm sorry, this, this week is all about the science fiction movies. All right, so here is where we run into that beautiful and vitally important word, ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism is the belief that your people and your way of doing things are inherently superior to any other people and any other way of doing things ever. Let me give you an example from the Roman Empire, because hey, Romans! <clears throat> Romans freely acknowledged that the Greeks were better artists and philosophers. Asia, by which they meant what is now the Middle East, more adept at astronomy. And Egypt was the source of all religion. But Romans were good administrators. And because Romans were good administrators, it was their destiny to rule the world! You know, in some ways, they weren't wrong. But that's a story for another time. Now let's drag this up to the present time for a minute and address the issue of white supremacy. I find it, personally, highly ironic that people whose ancestors wandered all over the steppes of Eurasia before landing at various times in northern and western Europe claim to be the epitome of civilization. Yes, this is my own heritage I'm talking about. My ancestry is 99% northern and western European. So take that for what it's worth. But anyway, <clears throat> the eventual inhabitants of Northern and Western Europe, and now quite a lot of the Americas too, were called barbarians by literally every single major empire they ran into. Rome, Greece, India, China, Japan, you name it. Before being conquered by Rome, our ancestors didn't have a writing system. We didn't invent monumental art and architecture, and even the dominant religion of Christianity was imported from the Middle East. Nevertheless, after migrating over to the Americas, some of us decided that all the cultural heritage we've begged, borrowed, or stolen over the centuries made us somehow inherently better than everyone else. It kind of makes my head hurt. But this is the power of myth. Whether it is empirically accurate or not means diddly squat. What matters is what people believe and what community they identify with. This is vitally important when it comes to understanding the role that stories play in art. Often, a group of people will identify themselves as part of their community through a certain set of myths, even when they don't believe themselves. Knowing certain stories and what they mean can instantly make you a member of the Wink Wink Nudge Nudge Club. Not knowing those stories can ruin your reputation for life. This is one of the reasons why the Greek and Roman myths are so important for understanding Western art. The Greeks had cool stories. The stories got picked up by the Romans. The Romans went just about everywhere they possibly could, and then Christianity came along. Sure, people had pretty much stopped worshipping the gods by about the 6th century, but everyone knew about them still. Even later on, if you learned how to read, you learned Latin. And you learned Latin by reading books that were full of references to guess who? The Greek and the Roman gods. So, a classical education, which was standard for the upper classes, meant that you knew the Greek and Roman histories and myths. By the same token, if you knew the histories and myths, you were automatically included in that elite crowd. Maybe only on the periphery of that crowd, but for some people, that can be enough. Now, because the Greeks and, and the Romans and their myths became such a status symbol, 
because it marks you as belonging to the elite class. We have a lot of paintings and sculptures that come from time periods long after the traditional religion of these gods were dead. If we want to know how to read these paintings and these sculptures, we have to know both the original myths and how contemporaries played with them. That's why it's helpful to have at least a nodding acquaintance with the Greek and Roman deities before heading over to an art museum. When you do, however, pay close attention to what time period the painting or sculpture you're looking at comes from. If the sculpture or painting is modern, say from the 14th century on to the present, you can pretty much use modern sensibilities to interpret it. If it's ancient, however, if it comes from the 4th century or earlier, then you're dealing with religion, and that's a whole nother ballgame. We're used to thinking of religion apart from politics, myths separately from religion, but this is a recent invention, thank you Founding Fathers of the United States of America. For the vast majority of human history, religion, politics, myth, and society were all tangled up together in various and sundry ways. So, when you see a Greek vase painting of Hercules, for example, you're not just seeing an action-packed story full of heroic feats of strength and endurance done up in black figure or red figure vase painting. You are also seeing someone who was worshipped as a divine being. If I were going to relate this to something in the modern world, I'd say that a vase painting of Hercules to an ancient Mediterranean person would be similar to, okay, let's say you were raised Catholic and have a coffee mug with your patron saint on it, say St. George, and it shows St. George fighting the dragon. Now, if you have a new friend who isn't Catholic, let's say she's not really religious at all, but she likes The Hobbit and all things Benedict Cumberbatch because who doesn't, and let's face it, dragons are cool. She might look at your coffee mug and she'll see a knight wearing armor fighting a dragon. Hey, knights, dragons, it's a fantasy novel! And maybe she'll think that you like fantasy and medieval times and renaissance fairs and maybe you do and maybe you don't, but she'll start giving you stuff like that for your birthday and Christmas and whatever. Of course, to you, if you're Catholic, that dragon actually symbolizes evil. And St. George overcoming the dragon is a symbolic victory over the devil. If he's your patron saint, looking at that mug every day might remind you to be strong in facing your weaknesses and to lean on your patron saint when needed. Nothing at all to do with Tolkien or popular ideas about the medieval world or fantasy or anything. And what if you actually don't like fantasy? What if you're more of a gearhead and you much prefer NASCAR to medieval times? Things between you and your new friend just got really awkward, all because of misinterpreting a single coffee mug. This is what ethnocentrism does. Ethnocentrism assumes that your way of viewing the world is the only correct way and prevents you from understanding the real purpose behind whatever object you're looking at. It's the reason we don't know very much, if anything, about so many ancient cultures. Mayan culture, for example, we don't know nearly as much about Mayan culture as we might have because when the Spanish conquistadores showed up, they took one look at the records of the Mayan and Aztec people, which are pictographic and kind of bonkers. They're really cool, actually, but that's, again, for some other time. They saw that, uh, so the conquistadors saw that the pictures were weird 
and scary and kind of gross looking, they decided it was all demonic and they burned the lot of it. They burned millennia of history in addition to religion and genealogy and everything else they could get their hands on because it didn't look like what they expected. Oops. Now, some bias is inevitable. We all think that our own beliefs are the best. Otherwise, we'd believe something else. However, in order to understand anything at all about art from other times, other places, or even other people, we have to be willing to acknowledge our own biases and at least try to set them aside. There is another aspect of ethnocentrism that is equally damaging. Cultural appropriation. Now, this is a term that gets thrown around a lot because it goes right along with issues of cultural supremacy, imperialism, colonialism, and all those other isms that mean I get to take your stuff, including your heritage, because I'm cooler than you. Cultural appropriation is, for example, when a student decides to wear an eagle feather headdress to a costume party because it's fun and, hey, let's play cowboys and Indians. It's when you collect African ritual masks or Native American pottery or pretty much black market anything with as much fervor as an amateur entomologist might collect butterflies and for much the same reason. Now, this doesn't mean I'm against collecting, okay? That I I have no problem with collecting at all. I have a problem with cultural appropriation as collecting, right? So when you take ownership of something or when you treat something as legitimately yours just because you can, right? That's what I have a problem with. Cultural appropriation assumes ownership of a thing without regard to its actual role in the society where it originated. Who cares that wearing an eagle feather headdress for kicks and giggles is just as insulting as wearing a papal tiara or a mitre? Who cares that those pots are actually tombs and that digging them up and putting them in your china cabinet is basically putting someone else's dead grandma on display? Tomb Raider is a fun game, and hey, Indiana Jones did it! Indiana Jones is a terrible, 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 horrible, no good, very bad archaeologist, by the way. He's a glorified treasure hunter. And that's the problem, right? We've got all of these ideals of treasure hunters going into these miraculous spaces of um, foreign, usually quote-unquote primitive, and they go on adventures and deal with booby traps, and then they pick up this fantastic treasure, and they make off with it so that they can make a fortune. It's all about getting rich quick. It's all about cultural appropriation. Notice that the only reason any of these heroes, quote-unquote, decides to learn anything about a particular culture is so that they can steal something and make money off of it. It has nothing to do with understanding the culture itself, the way human beings work, broadening communication, learning the multiple things that we can all learn from each other, Uh, That means diddly squat in face of the almighty dollar. Now, it's probably a good idea to remind ourselves that appropriation is not always a bad thing. Technology gets appropriated all the time, and it leads to better lives all around. Myths and stories get appropriated, refashioned, and retold. 
And frankly, there are some clothing fashions that deserve to be spread as widely as possible because dang it, they're just pretty. And they're also really comfortable. Salwar Kameez, I'm looking at you. As always, it is the intent that matters. For creative types, if a particular thing deserves to be spread as widely as possible, because it's awesome, go ahead, appropriate. But if it is sacred, or if it marks a specific cultural identity, then it is probably best not to use it without careful thought and a lot of research and a lot of sensitivity. After all, identity is an important part of who we are. Our cultural heritage is part of our identity. So when you appropriate someone else's cultural heritage, you're actually stealing their identity just as much as if you are, well, okay, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but almost as much as if you decided to take their identity online and start using their credit cards. The stories we tell about who we are, where we come from, and why we're here, those are part of our identity. They show up in the art that we use, and they become the ways that we identify ourselves to others. So, whether you're making art, looking at art, wearing it, or decorating with it, think about what it says. Who are you? This has been an episode of Pieces of Art a podcast about ancient art, modern art, and everything in between. Thanks for listening.